The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Now we have the privilege of hearing God speak to us through His Word, through Scripture, and through the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Titus chapter 2, because we're going to be finishing there. This is the time together corporately where we get to look to God's Word. And like I said, we're, this is how God speaks literally to His people through Scripture, through the Bible. And if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in you and the Holy Spirit literally teaches the Scripture to you and me and gives us understanding of Scripture. It's called the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So we have that great privilege. We've been going through the book of Titus. Short little book, only three chapters in your English Bible. And we're concluding chapter 2. And we're going kind of a passage at a time. And in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul addressed the congregation group by group in a very personal way, reminding them of what their priorities are for living as a Christian. And he did it in demographics pretty much based by age. Uh, older men, younger or older women, and then the younger women and the younger men. And then he transitioned into kind of your social status. If you were a slave, he addressed the slaves. And we saw how there were applications of slaves to today employment in terms of principles that we could apply. <clears throat> and then after that, uh, he talks about the supernatural power and ability by which we live these commands out because we can't do it in our own strength. So that's the context of where we are, verses 11 through 15. So follow along as I read in Titus chapter 2, 11 through 15, which again is Paul's Actually, God's reminder to us that we obey Jesus, not in our own strength, but based on this great reality, this supernatural divine reality that's given in verses 11 through 15. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Last week we looked at verses 11 and 12. So this is part 2 today looking at 13 through 15 because 11 through 15 is a paragraph that goes together. It's one main thought. The emphasis is on Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's done on behalf of sinners and how He has empowered sinners to live in a godly way on His behalf for His glory. Uh, this is a supernatural enablement, and so that's what we're looking at today. Uh, as we emphasize verses 13 and 15 in your bulletin there, if you want to follow the outline that's provided, just got some practical uh, principles that I highlighted around, uh, and I... My title there is Keys to Godly Living in the Local Church. Point of emphasis. Keys to Godly Living in the context of the local church. I believe in chapter 3 we're going to see keys to godly living in a hostile, unbelieving world. Chapter 2, the whole theme is about how to live godly in the Christian congregation, in the assembly of believers as a spiritual family as we rub shoulders from day to day and week to week. And anytime you have saved sinners, 
saved, yes, sinners still, living in close proximity and rubbing shoulders and living life together. Rubbing shoulders, sparks fly, don't they? And we have to learn how to live with one another graciously in a godly manner, in a forgiving manner, a Spirit-led manner, in obedience to Scripture by the grace of God. And there's responsibilities upon us to pursue that. And as Paul said in Romans 12, insofar as it depends upon you and you and you and me, Christian, be at peace with all men. And in this context, it's be at peace with all believers in your local assembly, in your local church. And so that's really the theme of chapter 2. Keys to godly living in the local church. How do we get along? What's our role? How can we please God? And Paul answers some of those questions based on your season of life. Where are you? Are you married? Do you have children? Are you a mother? Are you a father? Are you a grandpa? Are you older? Are you younger? Are you mature? Are you immature? Um, your socioeconomic status in terms of do you have an employer and those kind of things. And we have responsibilities in, in those areas and how we live and interact in the church. So that's his point of emphasis. Just by way of reminder, because I don't want you to forget, uh, all of chapter 2 was about Paul telling us what our main priorities were. And so when I ask the older men in this congregation, you can answer in your own heart and before God. If you're a believer and you're an older man, be reminded your main responsibility before God or a primary responsibility, is to live a stable life. And he used that word perseverance for the older man. Persevering, hanging in there, don't give up, faithfulness, pressing on. So many people just cut it short, bail, a lack of faithfulness, thinking this is a a 100-yard dash and not a marathon. The Christian life is a marathon. And you've got to be in it for the long haul. And so the, the challenge to the older man is be an example of what that perseverance means, hanging in there for the long haul. And be an example, particularly to the younger people and the younger men. Younger men are typified by a lack of patience. I know that because I was a professional, impatient young man at one time. So that's Paul's exhortation to the older man. Be stable, persevere. The older women, again, just a, a reminder, how are you doing, older women? Notice I didn't call you old women because I'd get in trouble. <laughs> I said older women. Um, just one of the main points of emphasis is are you mentoring younger women? Because that was kind of one of the main exhortations. Uh, if you're a Christian and you're uh, an older woman, you should be ment- You've got to have at least somebody under you. That's God's call for you. Mentoring, being an example. It could be your own daughters. Somebody in your family. It could be somebody in the church. But that's God's amazing call for your life, among other things. Younger women, how are you doing? Uh, as you're walking with God as a sinner in this difficult fallen world by the grace of God. And one of the points of emphasis thematically for the young women we saw and the challenge to them was they need to be submissive. They just need to have submissive attitudes and submissive hearts, which does not come naturally to a sinner. Young men, how are you doing? Uh, Paul actually only gave us one thing to focus in for the, the young men. We looked at it and that is you've got to control your thought life. That is a battle it's hard to do. How are you doing? Do you have accountability? Are you uh, have a strategy in laying that before God on a regular basis? So we can't forget these priorities. They're so important and foundational. And then uh, anybody here that's an employee and has a boss in their life, how are you doing? How'd you do this last week with your boss? How was your attitude? Were you working as hard as you could for the glory of God, knowing that it's Jesus really that you serve and not your fallen sinful boss? Were you thankful that you even had a job if you have a job? 
these are some of the things that Paul emphasized. If you were a slave or you have a master in your life. And then one that isn't listed here, I'll just ask the rest of you. Children, because you're not in this list in chapter 2 of Titus, but you're in Colossians and Ephesians and other places. And your obligation if you're a child is to obey your parents in the Lord. Obeying your parents with the right actions and the right attitudes. How did you do this week? How are you doing? So those are some good practical challenges. Maybe you were convicted as I went through that list. I know I was to do self-evaluation, and hence that brings us to 11 through 15, highlighting 13 through 15. We cannot fulfill these requirements of God in our own strength. It has to be in God's power, in God's strength, according to His plan. And so that was the whole point of 11 through 15. How in the world can we do this, fulfill these on a regular, ongoing basis? And it is all through the grace of God. That's verse 11. For the grace of God for... Look at verse 11. For... The word for connects us back to the entire chapter. You can do all these things because... That's what it means. Young woman, you can be a submissive young woman of God even though you're a sinner and even though your husband or brother or dad or boss is hard to live with. You can do it for or because. Verse 11, because the grace of God has come. It has appeared. That is the person of Jesus Christ. The Savior came into this world to seek and to save sinners. And if you're a Christian, you're a sinner that got saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Your identity is in the supernatural risen Christ Jesus our Lord. That is why, that is how it's possible to fulfill these mandates of such a high calling. Jesus has appeared. He brought salvation to all people, those who are saved. And He continues through His Holy Spirit and His Word to instruct us how to live in this world. Denying negative things and sin and ungodliness and also to... Uh, supplant the ungodliness with godly living, godly virtues and the power of the Spirit. That was last week, 11 and 12. And then he carries on to the crescendo here, and that's 13 through 15. How do we fulfill these biblical mandates? How do we live godly in the local church? And So let's go ahead and look at that. And I'll give you four principles. How do we live in a godly way in this fallen world and also in this fallen body? It's not easy. Can't do it on our own. Well, one of the things, look at verse 13. It's A lot of it has to do with our attitude and our perspective. Are you a glasses half empty kind of person or a glasses half full or the glasses empty? Or the glasses full and overflowing? This diagnoses your attitude and your perspective in life. And Paul gets to the attitude here about how we're to live in this world with all of its problems and struggles in light of our high calling. So that's number one, our, our perspective. To live in a godly way in the local church, you've got to have the right perspective. What is our perspective? It's live for the eternal and not the temporal. Live for the eternal and not the temporal. Living in light of the future, in other words, if you're a Christian. It's all over the New Testament. Living, we live in light of the future. We live in, basically, we live in the light of Christ's coming. We live in the light of eternity. For so many reasons, and that's his point of emphasis. Look at verse 13. As a Christian, to live in a godly life in this world, to adjust our attitude, to give us a proper perspective, we need to live life in light of eternity. Looking for the blessed hope. Looking, verse 13. Uh, it's ongoing. It is continual. It's a present tense reality. It's something that's supposed to be a, a style, a lifestyle that's supposed to characterize us as Christians all the time. Looking for the blessed hope. Living in light of eternity. 
and not focused on the temporal. The temporal are the things that are happening right now, that some of which don't even have an eternal significance. And key to this is looking for the blessed hope. The blessed hope is just the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When is Jesus coming? Uh, Jesus Himself said that the details of that haven't been revealed to humanity. But certain realities have been revealed to the saints. That is, we know for sure He's coming. It is a reality. It's imminent. So we need to be ready at any time. And it's going to be glorious. We know that as well from Scripture. But we need as Christians to be living in light of Christ's coming. And that's how you have it. That's where it starts of having an eternal perspective about life. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Looking for the blessed hope. The word for looking as well. Just It's a compound Greek word. It's intensified because it's got a preposition on the front of it. And it means waiting expectantly. And it's deliberately and expectantly. And it's continually in your frame of mind and frame of reference. It's a part of your worldview as you live day to day the Christian life. So let me ask you, Christian, i got to ask myself. When was the last time you seriously thought about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as a Christian? I was thinking about that yesterday and I think, wow, I think it's actually been too long for me. That is not healthy. When I first became a Christian and then learned about the coming of Christ, I got very excited. That's pretty typical of people who become Christians early on in their Christian life. They're excited about the second coming of Christ, whether it's the rapture or the second coming at the end of the age. and They're praying for Jesus' return and uh, they live in the light of His coming in a very real way. I know that was a season of my life where I had that attitude, and that's a very healthy biblical attitude. And then, you're, you know, years go by, and more years go by, and Jesus didn't return, and you got trials piling up in your life, and hardships of life, and disappointments in life, and apparent unanswered prayers in your life, and you get discouraged and negative and down, and wow, I don't know if Jesus is coming. After all, or what difference does it make? So it is easy to get despondent. And having the wrong attitude. And that's why Paul is reminding these Christians they need to hear this continually and ongoing. You need to live in light of Christ coming with an eternal perspective, literally looking for the blessed hope. And that is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. In glory. The appearing. Uh, the, the word for appearing is the manifestation, the unveiling of a glorious thing that we've never seen before in our life. Jesus came very as a humble servant the first time 2,000 years ago. He's going to come as the glorious, majestic Lord at His second coming that the entire world is going to see when He comes at that time. That's going to culminate all of world history. And the question is, we know how the story ends. Whose side are you on? Who wins? Well, we know the Lord Jesus Christ does. And if you're in His family, you're on the winning team. It's great motivation and incentive for keep for keep plugging along in life and persevering. And as Christians, we need to be continually looking for this blessed hope. And again, the blessed hope is just the reality of Christ coming. By the word, the way, the word hope there, we use the word hope differently today in our vernacular. Hope is kind of... It's, it, there's no assurance or certitude to the word hope today. I hope the Broncos go to the Super Bowl. Not! Didn't happen. But that's what I was hoping. Um, I hope this. I hope that. I hope it doesn't rain on Friday. That is not how the Bible uses the word hope. The word hope continually, 100% of the time in the New Testament, actually speaks about a certain reality that is going to happen because it is a promise of the omnipotent, eternal God. So when it calls the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ the blessed hope, the greatest hope of humanity, the greatest hope of the Christian, is the coming of Jesus Christ in glory in the future. That is going to happen. It is a certainty. Therein lies our hope. Our hope is not in this world. It can't be. 
It can't be. You'd be highly disappointed if any of your hope is in this life. So this is a great way to refocus our perspective of how to live a godly life. Anything that comes your way that's a hardship, a trial, a problem, a death, whatever it is, you realize that it is only temporary because the greater eternal hope is the coming of the glory of Jesus Christ. To right all wrongs, to bring us to glory, so that we live with Him in glory for all eternity. Wow, what a perspective on how to approach life. And as you get older and older and older, this reality becomes more and more practical for you as a Sinner, and for me, is life is but a vapor. Life is so short. So that's how we need to live. We need to check our perspective. Are we living life in light of eternity, not in light of the temporal? Uh, go to Colossians real quick. Parallel verse, Colossians chapter 3. Just a couple books back. Right after uh, Philippians, you got Colossians chapter 3, and then the Apostle Paul says, starting at verse 1, therefore, in light of all these great realities of what Christ has done for the believer, and if you're a Christian, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, if you have been saved by Jesus Christ, who reigns on high in heaven literally right now. He is your Lord. That's where He is. That's where your home is. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, spiritually speaking, then keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, fix your mind, continually think about these things. Set your mind on the things above. Heavenly truths, heavenly realities, not on the things that are on the earth. Yeah, we can talk about the Super Bowl and have fun, but it's pretty superficial, right? Unless, of course, you're playing in the Super Bowl, but um, it's not going to last. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things in the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed or made manifest at a second coming, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Oh, what a day. What a glorious day for Christians. So I'll ask you again, when was the last time you thought about the reality of Jesus' return? And how did that literally impact your perspective in life and the latest trial you were dealing with? I guarantee you, the next time you have a trial or a disappointment, or you're frustrated, or you have an anxiety, meditate on the reality of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, it will affect your thinking. It will help give you supernatural peace of heart and of mind, that is a promise from God. But that's one of the keys to Godly living in the local church is our perspective. Live for the eternal, not the temporal. So says Paul. Uh, number two, they're going to verse 14. How else? Or what are some other keys to Godly living in the local church? In addition to the proper perspective, is our power. Our power. Live with divine power, not willpower. Willpower is trying to do things in your own strength. Willpower is a statement on the head of a website I read this week where it said something like, you can do whatever you think about doing. You can do whatever you want if you just try hard enough. You can do whatever you dream you can accomplish. I'm thinking, phooey. You cannot accomplish anything you dream. That's just not a reality. That's giving people false hope. I mean, I think I kind of know what they're saying, but that's just not reality. 
who just think about it hard enough, just the right planning and uh, enough willpower and enough hard work, enough breaks. God wasn't even in the equation to what they were proposing, but that we hear that so uh, frequently. You can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you think. You can do whatever you dream. Well, no, you can't. We can do what God will allow, empower, enable, what's in His will. It's got to start with Him. It can't be willpower. It's got to be divine power, supernatural power, power that is outside of ourselves, especially when it comes to relationships, because that's the emphasis of the point of, of chapter 2. Relationships, how you relate to other people. And as sinners interact, we need supernatural help outside of ourselves. And as Christians, we want to do the right thing. We have good intentions. I want to get along with my spouse. I want to get along with my kids. I wish my siblings got along. I want to get along with fellow church members. I want to get along with my employees at work. I want to get along. Can't we all just get along? And as a Christian, that should be a natural heart's desire. But in the words of Jesus, the Spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. We can't do it in our own strength. We need God's supernatural help and power. So it's not... Self-will, it's divine will and divine enablement. And so Paul tells us that. Where is the power? Well, he ends it in verse 13. We're living in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, when it said, the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, that's the New American Standard, which does an excellent translation of the Greek text. The great God and Savior. It's one definite article governing two nouns. God and Savior. It's the God and Savior. It's talking about one person. Who's that talking about? It's not the Father. It tells us at the end of verse 13, it's called an apposition, defining who the God and the Savior is. The great God and Savior is Jesus Christ. This is one of the most explicit verses in the entire New Testament of the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. And every false religion in the world denies that. But a Christian is a, someone who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the God-man. Isn't that amazing? The God-man who created the world, brought everything into existence out of nothing. The God-man who willingly gave himself on the cross to be punished for the sin of the world, raised himself from the dead, ascended on high, reigns on high as Lord of the entire universe, knows everything, is omnipotent and the great provider, will come again in glory and will judge every living soul. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christians have a personal relationship, an intimate, beloved and blessed personal relationship with this Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely amazing. Because He's the God-man. And therein lies our power. And because we know Jesus Christ, we have that power made available to us. So, looking at point number two, where does this power come from? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us. Gave Himself for us to redeem us. He gave Himself. That means He willingly came down. He created the world and then He willingly came down to the world that He created. And then He prearranged in eternity past the plan in which how He would give Himself through death on behalf of sinners. And then He willingly went to the cross, willingly got uh, crucified, willingly absorbed the wrath of the Father for the sin of sinners in His body, willingly raised Himself from the dead, willingly ascended back into heaven, and now He's seeking sinners and has been for 2,000 years to draw them to Himself that He might save them. He's the gracious Savior. He's called the Savior. 
It's the very nature and the heart of Jesus. It's a Savior. And through that act, He did many things. One of which, verse 14 says, He redeemed us. He bought us. He purchased us. That's what it means. He purchased us to redeem. We were slaves. And we got purchased by Jesus Christ out of the slave market. We were on the slave stand. In chains. Naked. Abused. Slaves to what? Slaves to the world. Slaves to Satan. Slaves to sin. Slaves to ourselves. Slaves to death. Which is called our enemy in 1 Corinthians 15. Slaves. Helpless slaves. And the Lord Jesus Christ purposely purchased us out of slavery through the process of salvation. And the price that He paid was His blood, says Acts chapter 20. And the blood refers to His death. His supernatural, perfect, willing, substitutionary death on our behalf. And it goes on in verse 14. It says, He gave Himself for us. He died for us to save us in order that He might redeem us or buy us out of the sin of slavery and Satan and death. For, uh, to purchase us, to redeem us from every lawless deed. See, He purchased us out of our own sinful life. And as a result of Him purchasing us, He now owns us. We are His possession. And there are implications of that. Because Jesus owns us, we got adopted into His family. And when you are adopted into somebody's family, all rights and privileges of that family belong to you. And that's true as the Christian. We were adopted into His family and we are heirs of everything that God has. Heirs, meaning we receive all these unbelievable, amazing, supernatural blessings from God by being in God's family. So if you just started thinking in your mind, I am an heir of Jesus Christ. I am in His family. He is my Master. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my elder brother. I am in His family. The Father is my Father. All that belongs to the Father in Jesus belongs to me, spiritually speaking, as a Christian. So the resources are just unbelievable. They're mind-boggling. The resources that are yours and mine as Christians that are available to us to live this life starting with salvation and forgiveness of all of our sins. Yippee! The moment you believed in Jesus Christ, you received the supernatural Holy Spirit of God who took up residence literally in you. Wherever you go, the Spirit of God is with you. That same Spirit who created the world out of nothing and raised Jesus from the dead lives in you if you are a Christian. You talk about power. Inherent power now through the Holy Spirit to live this life. To live this difficult life. And I can go on and on with all the other blessings that come with that supernatural, the power of prayer. To go directly to the Creator of the universe. Dear God, can you help me with this? Look at Ephesians chapter. So going back there in your, again, just a couple of books Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. Looking at Ephesians chapter 2. No, Ephesians chapter 3. At the end of chapter 3. Well, I don't feel that divine power, Pastor Cliff. I need that power and I, I can't get over this hang-up I have in my life or I can't see this happen. Or, Well, it's there. The power is there. It's available. And actually, God's probably uh, using that power in ways you just don't even realize as a Christian. We've got to discern what that power is. Uh, but that power is not in of ourselves. It's something given to us that is our, at our disposal that we can access primarily through salvation, the Holy Spirit, uh, the truth of the Scripture, prayer, Help with from other saints. But here's just an amazing verse about that power that is available to every Christian. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able, that's God, now to him who is powerful, God is all powerful. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, 
beyond all that we could ask or think. Just, I mean, apply that to your own life and your prayer life. God, help me with this. God, I'm asking you for this. I need this done in my life. I'm weak in this area. I would like this to happen. And then the promise here is that God is able to do more than all that stuff. More than you can ask, more than you can think. Wow. And look at how he does it at the end of verse 20. According to the power, that's supernatural power, divine power, power outside of ourselves, given by God, that comes from God. He is the source and origin of it. According to the power that works where? Within us. Isn't that amazing? And when it says it works within us, it's not talking about our power and our self-will. That is power that God has given us as Christians as a gift, that we are a steward of. It's salvation. It's the indwelling spirit. It's the truth of Scripture. It is the power of prayer. That's the power it's talking about. It is resident within us. We have accessibility to it. That's what it means. We have to be proactive in pursuing it. The power that God has enabled to us. This is a Christian in many ways. You, you can't say, I, I can't. I can't forgive that person. I can't get along with that person. I can't evangelize to that person. I can't be content in this situation. I can't be content in this marriage. Yes, you can. Because those are all biblical requirements and commands of a Christian and there's supernatural power that God has given you to make it happen. So an adjustment needs to be made. But the power is there. The power is there. So it starts with our perspective, living in light of eternity, and then realizing the proper power and the source. It is in God and in salvation and the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And then it goes on. Jesus saved us, redeemed us with supernatural power for specific and practical purposes. That's number three. What is our purpose as we live life? And again, he just wants to get us recalibrated just to focus and be real simplistic here. We went through the book of James and there were like 60 commands. Boy, that was giving me a headache. That's too many to remember. Man, I blow about 42 of those routinely. Man, just give me one command. God, okay, that's what we got here. A general generic command for believers to keep in mind of why God saved you, why God saved me, of how we are to and expected to live our life. Going back to Titus, that takes us to point number three, our purpose. Our purpose. Oh, I was reading a devotional this week. It kind of startled me. It's like, wow. I don't know if I've ever heard it stated that way. I don't know if I believe that. But this guy said it, so I have to believe it. So it must be true. So I need to change my thinking. And it said for the Christian, your, your greatest purpose in life as a Christian is not to live godly. It is to proclaim the gospel of redemption. Now, it wasn't saying we're supposed to live ungodly. That is not what it was saying. It was saying our main calling in this life. And then it went on to explain what it meant. And I thought, oh yeah, wow, that is true. But in balance to that statement, um, we are called to live godly. And that's point number three. One of the purposes in which we live and have been called and saved by God is for godly living. And we are to live for service, not satisfaction. That's the difference between a Christian attitude and an unsaved pagan attitude. What do you live for? Are you living for self or are you living for others? Are you self-oriented or other-oriented? Do you live for service knowing who your true master is or do you live for satisfaction? What this practically looks like... Actually, let me read the rest of the verse there in Titus uh, that emphasizes this. So Jesus saved us. He redeemed us. He redeemed us from our sin. He redeemed us to purify us for Himself. 
a people for His own possession, that He might own us and we belong to Him. And since Jesus owns us, that makes Him our Master and Lord. And if He is our Master and Lord, that makes us slaves and servants. And a slave and a servant has main, one main obligation to a master, that is simply to obey. That is simply to serve the Lord and the Master. And Jesus is a Lord and a Master, and He is a perfect, sinless, worthy Lord and Master. So it is a good thing to live in service and obedience to this Lord and Master. And that, that is at the heart of the Christian life. There are many synonyms for being a Christian, and one of the main ones is that we are servants. We are slaves of Christ. puts everything in its proper perspective. Meaning we don't live for self, we live for someone else. We live for our Master, we live for our Lord. We live for service, not for satisfaction. He owns us. We are His. We belong to Him. Everything we have and possess was a stewardship opportunity and blessing from Him that we're accountable to Him for because of His goodness and grace towards us. He redeemed us from every lawless deed to purify for Himself. It's all about Him. It's all about Christ. It's all about God. It's all about His will. It's all about His purpose. It's all about His glory. To purify for Himself a people, that's us, for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. That is is inherent to the Christian life and the Christian calling. That we would be zealous for good deeds. So we live for Christ. We live in service, for service to Him. We don't live for satisfaction. Living for satisfaction is like asking the question, well, what what does church have to offer me? What is this church giving me? What what am I getting out of this church? That, That is an immature attitude. That's a wrong attitude. It's an unbiblical attitude. And it's the exact opposite of what God calls us to. Service, not satisfaction. What does that music do for me? I mean, you can just go on and on. And it's not just in the church, it's home. What does my, what does my spouse do for me? It's the wrong attitude. You're a Christian, you've been called to serve. And that's his point of emphasis here, that Jesus redeemed us so that the outflow and the byproduct, the natural outflow and byproduct of our life, that we would be zealous for good deeds. See, that's the service. It's inherent to our saved nature that God expects us to be given over literally to good deeds, to service. That's what that means, good deeds. Now, you can be doing works that are actually not good. Oh, they do a lot of works. They do a lot of service. Boy, they're quite a philanthropist. And it's very possible that there are works and service and sacrifice that are done that aren't good. Actually, they don't please God. They're not according to His will. They're not biblical. They're not scriptural. They don't flow out of the overflow out of salvation or a redeemed heart. That's 1 Corinthians 13. If I give my body to be burned and do all kinds of active service, but I don't do it with the heart of God's supernatural, divine, saving love, then I am nothing. We don't just do good deeds to be a do-gooder. The works that we do have to flow from and be a byproduct of our redeemed life in accordance with God's will. Very important. There's an entire theology of proper good works that we're to be doing. And there are works that are illegitimate and serve no purpose. Hebrews chapter 9.14 says we have been saved from doing evil deeds or actually literally dead works. In other words, it's very possible before we got saved, we were a do-gooder, we did good deeds, all kinds of good works that 
people look at in society and say, wow, what a philanthropist or a do-gooder. Look at all those good deeds they do. Look at all those associations and organizations that are a part of volunteering their time. Oh, look at all that community service that they've racked up. That is impressive. And Hebrews 9.12 says it could very well be those are dead works. So here's just a brief theology on proper biblical service that I think pleases God in terms of the attitude and the nature of these good works we need to be doing. But we need to start with the foundation. Going back again uh, in your Bible, backwards to Ephesians chapter 2. Just a reminder of how good deeds, good works are an overflow and a byproduct of salvation. So it's really this simple. Christians do service because they are saved, not to get saved. Christians do good works because they are saved, not to get saved. It may seem quite simple, but that is incredibly profound because every false religion in the world and every false philosophy believes just the opposite. You do good to get saved. You do good to earn God's approval. You do good to hopefully keep you from going to hell. You do good to get God a good karma. And it's totally backwards from what Scripture says. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 through 10. Look at it. For by grace you have been saved. Past tense. God saved you by grace through faith. You believe in the Gospel. God saves you. Boom. Happens in a moment of time in your life. By grace you have been saved through faith. Uh, and you didn't get saved by yourself. It was a gift from God. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Verse 9. It's not a result of good works. Religious works. Spiritual works. We can't earn it. So that no one may boast. So God saved you by grace through faith. Then after you're saved is verse 10. Get this. For we are God's masterpiece or workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were created by God, saved by God to do good works. Works that please Him. What is a good work? What's a good work versus a dead work? Well, it's a work of service that pleases God, is in accordance with God's will. It is a biblical work. It has to be defined by Scripture. For we are His masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. Get this. Well, God created us so that we might do good works on His behalf in service to Him as the King. Well, when did He design these good works and when did He call us to do good works? Which God prepared. God prepared these works for us to do beforehand in eternity past is what that means. In eternity past so that we should walk in them. So before I was ever even created, this world was ever created, in eternity past, the triune God of the universe had a plan to save us in Christ Jesus, to redeem us one by one. And also with that, commensurate with that, were works out of the overflow of your Christian life that you would do in service to Him to advance His kingdom for His glory. So if you are a Christian, the question is, am I in God's will doing His Good works that He's called me to do that He planned in eternity past to further His kingdom for His glory. That's amazing. And if that hurts your brain, uh, it hurts mine. But let's go back to Titus chapter 2. So our purpose, we live for service to the King, not satisfaction. And again, the point of satisfaction, that is so natural to our human nature. What am I going to get out of this? What's going to make me happy? Well, it's going to, especially when you're talking about the church, that is such a wrong attitude about church. Our attitude about church is, I get to meet the King this morning, the Creator and Savior of the universe, worship Him, give Him glory. Isn't that amazing? That is absolutely amazing. I get to come and gather with the saints and have fellowship with them and see how I might encourage and love one another to stimulate them to love and good deeds. How can I bless someone else today? How can I hurt someone who's hurting today? Totally different perspective. Versus, wow, nobody was really nice to me today at church. 
And we all do that, don't we? We all struggle with that. How we feel after church. It's like, man, I got to meet the King. Praise God, I got to take communion and be reminded of Jesus' death on my behalf. Thank You, Lord, for that great privilege, which I do not deserve. Help me to live more and more for You and service to You and be selfless and other-oriented because it goes totally against our nature. Totally against our nature. Now, just a couple other comments on proper service. You might be involved in a good deed. Uh, but I will say this, that being that if you're a Christian, God has called you to, to service. It's service first in the church. That doesn't mean that if you volunteer for the Boy Scouts, you need to give up on the Boy Scouts. Or if you volunteer for your local school and you're a classroom mom, you don't need to get, that's not what I'm saying. But, and that's a good, good deed. I've done that. But it starts with the church. Your service as a saved Servant, slave of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, your service begins in the local church. This is right out of Scripture. I, do read, I want to read Galatians 6 because it explicitly says that. Uh, Galatians 6 says, verse 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good. Christian, don't get tired of doing good. Don't get tired of serving in a way that pleases God. Why did Paul say that to the Galatians? Because some Christians in Galatia were getting tired of serving. You know what? I've been teaching Sunday school for three years. I am tired of those third graders. I quit. Paul says, no, no. Don't give up. Why do we give up? Well, people give up for a lot of reasons. They get discouraged. They get distracted. They, get, they lose perspective. They're not thinking eternally. They're thinking temporally. They're thinking, what am I going to get out of this? Nobody's noticing. Oh, it's not doing any good anyway. I want to do something else. We get discontent. And that's why this command is here. Let us not lose heart in doing good. Remember who you serve. It's not man, it's God. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So he recognizes the reality as humans we get weary, don't we? I mean, it's crossed my mind a few times when I woke up in the morning. I don't want to go to church and preach today. I'm tired. I have a headache. I don't feel good. And then my wife makes me go. But anyway... Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Get this, verse 10, So then, while we have opportunity, while we are able to do so, able-bodied, physically able, God's given us the stewardship capacity to do it, then do it. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, here's the key, and especially to those, or first to those, or primarily to those, this is where Christians get messed up. And they get the priorities backwards. Let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You know what that means? Service starts in the church. So if you've got 14 organizations outside of the church that you're a part of and you're serving and you are serving nowhere in your local church, blessing no one, you got it backwards. 1 Peter 4.10 says the same thing. God has given you, He saved you. He's given you a spiritual gift. You need to use that spiritual gift, whether it's a speaking gift or a service gift, in the church. And you are accountable for that gift before God. It starts in the church. So that's very important to keep in mind. We've got to have the proper balance. Your, your church should be your, your spiritual family. It's got to be your hub. It's got to be your anchor. You've got your family. Then you should have your local church if you're a Christian. Clear in the New Testament, Paul said the church is the local rock and pillar of your life and of the truth. It's your believing community. It's your support system. 
especially when, when life is hard. And notice these good works, uh, the nature of them in our attitude, zealous for good works, that zeal, enthusiasm about our service. I am excited and have the great privilege because I am saved to go and serve in my local church, the body of Christ, and I get to set up for sound this morning at 7.30 while everybody else is sleeping. That is so exciting. Now, some people actually have that attitude, which is kind of a foreign attitude, but it's a supernatural enablement that God gave them. They actually have joy in service in doing that. Then there are others who tear down. And there are others who uh, do other menial tasks that are so important that bless other people and edify and build the church. And that's how the church is supposed to work. Every component is absolutely essential. We need every piece for the puzzle for it to be whole. Zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good works. Zeal and enthusiasm and thankfulness with the right attitude in serving in our local church. That's what, that's what it's talking about. This is affirmed all throughout the New Testament. So let me ask you, Christian. Okay, guilt trip time. Um, Are you a Christian? Yes. If you are, uh, God has called you to service, not self-satisfaction. Where are you serving? And where are you serving in your local church? And then where are you serving after that uh, in your community and abroad? So there is a proper order. And if you aren't serving, you've got to ask God, God, help me. But uh, you've got to keep the priorities in order. And God will bless you. He'll answer your question. He'll help you contribute to the growth of the body. So, uh, living keys to living godly in the local church. Right perspective, living in light of Christ's coming. Remembering our divine power source, the redemption we have in Christ. Our purpose is for service, not self-satisfaction. And finally, number four, our purview. That's the umbrella of authority under which we live and operate. Our purview is we live by authority, not by autonomy. We live by authority, not by autonomy. Autonomy, that's kind of a big word. Auto means self. Nami, namas, law. Self-law. Somebody who has their own rules, their own authority. They don't like authority. They defy authority. They defy accountability. They don't want people telling them what to do. That's autonomy. The opposite of that is authority. As a Christian, we live under authority, proper authority. That's how we live our life. And so that's verse 15. Pretty self-explanatory. These things, as he's wrapping up. Now, keep in mind that in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul went to the island of Crete with Titus and there were problems on the island of Crete. And they had probably all these little house churches, which is great and exciting, but some of them were disorderly and they had some immaturity going on. There were actually some divisive people uh, infiltrating the churches. And there was wrong teaching going on. And worse than that, there were bad attitudes creating problems in the church. So one of the reasons Paul went with Titus was to straighten things out. And he had some rotten, sour apples messing things up. And he told us that in Titus chapter 1. Just this reminder in light of verse 15 in chapter 2. Verse 10 says, For there are, Titus, I'm telling you, in your churches there in Crete, there are many rebellious men. Wow, that's scary. They are rebels. Probably they weren't outward rebels that you could peg by the virtue of their jeans hanging down below their pants and everything and all that stuff. They were rebels primarily of the heart. Of the heart, they wanted authority. They wanted power. They wanted to manipulate people. They wanted power in the church. They wanted recognition. Uh, that's what it's talking about. They were rebels. They rebelled against the authority of God and His Word and the proper authority established in the church through the pastors and elders. For there are many rebellious men in your churches, empty talkers, they just do, they do a lot of talking, a lot of hot air, and deceivers. 
So that's a good reminder in light of verse 15. Because Paul's saying, okay, now you've got to tell all this stuff to your people in your local churches, Titus. And you know what? You're probably going to get some resistance. People are going to write on a little white card saying, they didn't like your sermon. You hurt their feelings. Hence verse 15. Actually, the beginning of chapter 2, he said this. Uh, these are kind of the bookends of the brackets of chapter 2 and all these uh, commands for how people are supposed to live in the church. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for healthy doctrine. You need to speak truth and you need to do it authoritatively. And then he gives all that information in chapter 2 and then he reminds them again at the end of chapter 2 emphatically, verse 15, these things, Titus, everything that I just told you in chapter 2, speak, that means preach it. Preach it, present tense, keep on preaching it. And by the way, the word for speak here, laleo, is it is verbal communication. In other words, don't depend on a video or drama to communicate it or spiritual interpretive dance. You need to preach this message. Jesus was a preacher. The apostles were preachers. You need to be a preacher. That's what a pastor is supposed to do. Preach it, preach it, preach it till Jesus comes again. That's what that word means. And then there's two ways you need to preach this message. You need to exhort, which is a positive word. That's kind of the coach encouraging, hey, good shot, good hustle. It's okay that you missed five in a row. Just try it again next time. So that's the word exhort. It's a positive word. People fall over, you grab them by the hand, you pull them up. Keep going. That's how I am to speak. That's how the preacher is supposed to speak. In positive, encouraging ways, when appropriate to motivate. And then also there are times where the preacher needs to speak words of reproving. That's correction. That's admonishment. Oh, you messed up. Well, don't do that again. That's sinful. Stop that. Here's what you need to do instead. Um, so you got the positive and the negative of the preacher. Uh, and do this with all authority. And the authority, by the way, comes... Did you know that I have absolutely zero authority as a pastor? Or actually, as, as a person, as Cliff, spiritually speaking, in terms of what I have to say to you that you are obligated to me. Pastor Cliff, actually, Cliff McManus has zero authority. But in my role as pastor elder, and the authority that comes primarily from the Bible, that's where the authority is. So any authority that I have that I communicate to you that you're obligated to obey and submit to comes 100% from Scripture, not from anything that I made up. So you're called to obey really the Bible and God, not me. But God chooses human instruments. So there is authority that is delegated through me, but I didn't invent any of it. It's not any of my imagination. It's not my truth. If I did invent some of it, you need to correct me and show me from Scripture where I messed up, where I'm not accurately preaching the Bible. But the authority that is to be submitted to and obeyed here and not disregarded is the authority of scriptural and biblical truth that came from the mouth and the mind of God. So that's why he can be so dogmatic. Paul says to young Titus, Titus, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. And if you have to slam your hand on the pulpit every once in a while, go for it. Let no one disregard you. Implication, some people in the church are going to disregard you. They're going to question you. They're going to challenge you. They're going to criticize you. They're going to gossip about you. They're going to try to undermine your leadership. They're going to try to undermine the truth. Some of what you say will offend them and they will leave the church. Yeah. It's been going on for 2,000 years. That's what they did to Jesus. Let no one disregard you. Really, what you could write in there, or what it means, let no one disregard the truth of God's Word. That's really what it means. So, 
to the best of my ability, through the training that I have received and the modeling that I've received and the giftedness that God has given me and the accountability commensurate with it as well, I try to represent the Scripture as objectively as possible and pray to God that I do. And those listening believers need to be Bereans checking the Word of God to see if it is true, if indeed I am cutting it straight. And in the event that I cut it straight, get it right, it goes out and it feeds the souls of the saints, that's awesome. And God does His work. And at times it will go out and it will convict people and actually it will offend some people. And every once in a while I'll hear about the offense. Uh, true story, like 10 plus years ago where I, I preached a sermon at another church and somebody came afterwards, well, this couple got out and walked out just before your message ended at the end of the sermon. I said, oh, really? Why is that? Well, talk to them. Uh, and the topic was on uh, abortion and what the Bible has to say about abortion. Well, they got offended that you said that that which is in the womb is a baby and a live person made in the image of God. Because they, they, don't, they don't think it's a person. And I, I was not uh, offended in the least that those people walked out angry at what I said. It's like, wow, God's Word is powerful. It hurts people. It makes people mad. And, and I was also kind of happy. Oh, they understood what I said. That's awesome. That was my point. They were not confused. That has happened at this church at least once that I know of. Years ago when we first started, a couple came and visited and they left and they're never coming back again. Just wanted you to know that. Oh, okay, why? Because uh, you said uh, that uh, women can't be pastors. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, actually I did say that today when I was reading out of Timothy where it said women can't be pastors. But can't uh, undermine God's truth. So therein lies the authority. It's not Cliff's authority, the elders' authority, the church's authority, traditional authority, the Pope's authority, on and on and on, man's laws. It is Scripture that came from God. So with that and these reminders, meditate on these throughout the day and also throughout the week. Don't forget them. Uh, knowing our obligation before God we are His slaves. We are His servants. He is the King. He is the Master. He hasn't left us as orphans. He's saved us. He's filled us with the Spirit of God. He's given us the, the resource of God's truth that comes from His very mind. He's given us the power of prayer. He's given us the community of the saints in the church for accountability and encouragement. It's amazing the resources we have. And we can live a life that is pleasing to God as we do it in accordance to His will. And with that, let's ask God's help that He might enable us to do these very things. Father, we thank You for our time together. The, just the wonderful privilege to worship with the saints in the local church, the body of Christ. Thank You for the treasure of Your Word in Scripture. Thank You that You help us understand it through the Holy Spirit, our Teacher. God, I thank You that You care about how we live life. You want us to get along. You want us to live in unity as it's a sign of Your love and that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But we need Your help. So empower us. God, help us to remember these truths we learned today that we need to have an eternal perspective depending upon Your divine power, living in service to You and not our own satisfaction under the purview of biblical authority. All for Your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit 
gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.